Thanks for joining me for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On Tuesday, we had a program uh, based on a listener question about uh, people being jailed for non-payment of debt. And we asked the question, have we returned or are we returning to the concept of debtor's prison? That provoked uh, quite a bit of response during the program. Here's an additional response from John, who emailed us with the following question. Are we not conflating two issues, debt and the law? and social welfare and putting responsibility on the sick, the injured, the poor. In other words, blaming and billing the victim. Thanks for that, John. You can continue those comments at upraxcess at gmail.com and on our website, upr.org. Welcome now to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. During a long and distinguished career with the U.S. State Department, Ambassador Christopher Hill was sent to some of the most dangerous outposts of American diplomacy, from the Balkans to North Korea to Iraq. In his memoir, Outpost, Life on the Front Lines of American Diplomacy, he takes us from one-on-one meetings with Slobodan Milosevic to Bosnia and Kosovo to the Dayton Conference, where a truce was brokered. He draws upon lessons learned as a Peace Corps volunteer in Cameroon early in his career. Details his extensive experience as U.S. Ambassador. He was the first American ambassador to Macedonia, ambassador to Poland, where he also served earlier in the depth of the Cold War, ambassador to South Korea, and chief disarmament negotiator in North Korea. And he served as Assistant Secretary of State for East Asian and Pacific Affairs. His last post was as ambassador to Iraq in 2009 and 2010. And uh, Christopher Hill is now Dean of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. He's coming to Utah next week for several events. We'll detail those as we go along. Those are happening on Tuesday in Salt Lake City. And he joins me for the hour to talk about uh, what's going on around us in the world uh, today. Ambassador Hill, welcome to the program. My pleasure. You're joining me, I think, from Denver. Oh, in snowy Denver, uh, oh, snowing hasn't quite uh, hit us yet, but we're <laughs> looking forward to it when it does. Yeah, same here in Utah. I'd, I'd, I'm hoping we'll get some sun again uh, today, but uh, I guess we need the moisture. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so uh, let me start with uh, with your early experiences. Understand uh, from the book that uh, you grew up, at least in part, abroad. You talk about going to school in Belgrade, for example. What uh, what was your family doing in, in some of these areas? Well, that's right. My dad was in the Foreign Service, and uh, so when I was uh, five years old, I went to Belgrade, Yugoslavia, and was there in first and second grades. And, um, you know, it was kind of an experience at at that age to sort of understand uh, what people think of Americans. I mean, uh, no one's indifferent to us. I, I like to think most of us, most of them like us, but, you know, that's not always the case. But uh, I sort of uh, got at an early age this idea that uh, what Americans say and do uh, is important to the rest of the world. Do you think that comes through to Americans living in America? Do you, do you think we think about that or... Uh, you know, I think most Americans living in America don't think enough about what uh, how we come across to foreigners. Um, it's uh, you know some of those places do seem very far away, but uh, I, I do find that sometimes when I'm overseas, it's you know countries like Albania and or Macedonia, very small countries that most Americans have not really heard about. Uh, it's amazing the degree to which people in countries like that will follow our own election cycle, will follow our own developments in the U.S., sometimes even better than Americans themselves. <laughs> I was going to ask you, let me bring that in right now. Uh, how do you think people in other countries will be following the elections? This is an especially spicy election season. How do you think it's playing in uh, in countries around the world? 
Well, I think uh, spicy is a good way to put it. There are other ways to put it as well. Uh, frightening, I guess, is uh, one uh, adjective that people use. Uh, we have an election where, you know, as foreigners kind of tune in, and you, you have to understand the whole world feels that they've got something at stake with American elections, not just Americans. And so they're looking at some of the things uh, that are being done, some of the things that are being said. And uh, frankly speaking, there's a, there's a lot of concern uh, about whether there will be enough continuity. Now, when you're um, representing the United States abroad, you're often trying to reassure people by saying, well, don't worry, you know, we'll still love you uh, no matter who wins this election. Uh, we'll still work with you. We'll still, uh, uh, you know, have these patterns of cooperation. Uh, but right now, people are just very nervous. Certainly, Donald Trump's comments the other day uh, made to the New York Times that somehow uh, we need to rethink the whole relationships or alliances with Japan and South Korea. I mean, these are both very sophisticated countries with very sophisticated uh, observers of things. And uh, they get very concerned when they see this kind of loose talk. And uh, talk about, and this is not only Mr. Trump, but talk of pulling back from NATO. Right. And pulling back in general yeah. with it, that America is yeah. is carrying disproportionate share of the load is, is what some well, candidates are saying. You know, there's always been that there's always been that concern, so-called burden sharing. And are these countries doing enough? Certainly, we've had issues with some of our European allies who, when we look at the percentage of their national budgets, they don't seem to be putting enough on defense. And so, you know, this is a constant effort to make sure uh, they're doing more. Uh, but just to kind of uh, say things uh, like that implies that somehow these alliances that we do these out of or we have these alliances as a favor to these countries, when in fact we have our own reasons why we want to have alliances. We have our own reasons why we want to have bases overseas. Uh, you know, we know that the threat to us doesn't necessarily come close to home. It can come in sort of far away, scruffy places. And so we want to be present there for our own reason. And uh, the notion that uh, somehow all these alliances are just, uh, you know, set up to help the South Koreans or help the Japanese kind of misses an important point. From point of view of a diplomat, say, in a, in a European country or a member of government uh, there, when Mr. Trump says some of these things, do you think they're thinking, oh, that's just the campaign trail. We'll be able to work with him if he's elected, or or do you think there is uh, real concern? Well, certainly uh, over the years, you have presidents or presidential candidates say things in the heat of the campaign, and everyone kind of sighs or gulps and says, well, you know, it's that's how it, it works in the U.S. You know, when they're not having professional football, they're having presidential campaigns. So, you know, it's just a rough sport. But I think uh, uh, Trump has taken this to a uh, new level of uh, essentially contempt for many countries. And uh, I think it's uh, being understood in a kind of qualitatively uh, different way than in the past. Hmm. If you were uh, advising any of the presidential candidates, what, what would you advise them? What, um, I guess, first of all, on, on substance and, and also on, on tone? Well, certainly, um, you know, as a Foreign Service officer, you're always tempted to say, uh, sir, this is a very complicated matter. But, uh, you know, that kind of advice doesn't uh, doesn't go so, go too far. So I think you have to kind of 
kind of stick with the facts and say, okay, this is where we are with country X, let's say South Korea. This is where we've been for the last uh, 70 years. This is why we're there today, and this is why we want to stay with them. And, and try to kind of stress uh, the need that, uh, yes, there may be different approaches to things, but we also want to show that we're a serious country with a serious agenda and a sense of continuity and, most of all, a sense that you can rely on us. So that um, message of America as a reliable partner, I think, is a very important thing. And we need to understand in this age of sort of instant communication, uh, not to speak of you know, social media and all of this, you cannot say different things to different audiences. You, you need to understand that if you're, if you're in Des Moines and saying something to people in Iowa, um, that same message gets picked up in places like Tokyo. So you have to be, you have to understand that there's no segmenting of audiences as there may have been, you know, back in the 19th century. There used to be an unwritten rule, which I think was obeyed uh, more than it is now, which was in, in campaigning that we need to all be on the same page, you know, what, no matter what party you are, when it comes to foreign affairs. And it well, seems like that's fraying. quaint concept, yeah. Uh, there was an idea that we should uh, politics should stop at the water's edge, and uh, that's certainly not proving to be the case right now. Um, politics have have definitely extended to our foreign policy, and in fairness to the U.S. side of this, many of these other countries feel it's their right to come to the U.S. and try to be influential. You know, uh, either uh, you know making donations to our think tanks and things like that. And with the consequence that they're trying to shape our politics. Uh, and so um, for other countries to be blaming us at times, you know, they need to be a little careful of how they deal with us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, sometimes that, that influence, uh, every country is trying to influence the other, right? But it, it, there, right. there are sort of these unwritten rules of how blatant do you, do you make it? Yeah, um, exactly. I wonder to the voter... What, what would you say? My, my experience over having observed many elections now, <laughs> um, is I kind of tune it out, foreign affairs, because I, I've, just, I've just seen president after president, no matter what he says, it's been he up to now, um, early on when he gets into office and gets the briefings and whatever, it seems like he, he, he changes. And so it, you kind of can't uh, trust what they're saying on the campaign trail because there, there are different realities in office. And I, I think that in many cases uh, you've been right to say, you know, it doesn't really matter that much. But we're talking about we're in an age where people really are making fundamental judgments of, you know, our country's role in the world. We're in an age where people don't respect institutions as much as they did. They don't trust institutions as much as they did. So I think we have to be a little careful with the idea that, oh, don't worry, it'll all um, be the same as it's always been. Uh, So when people, um, I I recall even during the Carter administration when Jimmy Carter in in his campaign made some loose comments about um, pulling U.S. troops out of South Korea. Now I'm going back here to 19... uh, 
76 when he made these loose comments. Next thing you know, we find out that the South Koreans are actually looking at nuclear options uh, if uh, the U.S. wasn't going to be there for them. So these things do have consequences. And I think um, people need to understand that Look, if you want to make um, uh, comments about our our own situation in the U.S., you know, go ahead. But you've got to be a little careful when your comments are reaching, you know, millions of people who are not Americans and not living in the U.S. I think it can affect our national security. And I make one other point. You know, I think a lot of uh, Americans, in fact, a lot of uh, people campaigning, take the view that somehow we are projecting, uh, we are looking weak in the world. I submit to you that one of the reasons we look weak is that we don't seem to be willing to kind of agree with each other on anything. And even when the issues are pretty clear, we don't uh, really uh, we don't necessarily support the president on issues that I think we should all be together on. I've been reading a book about uh, uh, during World War II and the issues that Roosevelt had following the attack on Pearl Harbor. And he had his critics, to be sure. But um, all the Republicans essentially lined up and said, this is not a time for us to be fighting This is with each other. This is a time to be projecting strength and unity abroad. Let's uh, take a break. When we come back uh, more with Ambassador Christopher Hill uh, during a long and distinguished career with the U.S. State Department, uh, he was sent to some of the danger spots of American diplomacy. Uh, he's been ambassador, I think, what, four times, Ambassador Hill, and uh, served Correct. in many areas. Uh, he is coming to Utah for several events. So let me uh, outline those before we go to break. He'll be uh, speaking to the Utah League of Women Voters of Utah. That's at 11 a.m. on Tuesday at Little America Hotel. More uh, information on that event at lmvutah.org. Then at 3 p.m., he's at the University of Utah at the Hinckley Institute. Uh, speaking there at 3 p.m., that's in the Hinckley Caucus Room. And information there can be had at hinckley.utah.edu. Finally, um, my pr- producer says it's LWV. Thank you for that correction. LWV. Don't want to send people to the wrong place. LWVUtah.org. Uh, uh, then uh, at the Hinckley Institute at 3 p.m. And uh, finally, uh, that evening, Tuesday evening, Salt Lake Committee on Foreign Relations. And uh, he'll be speaking uh, at their dinner. Begins at 6 p.m. with a social, 7 p.m. dinner, 8 p.m. presentation. That's at the Alta Club in Salt Lake City. Information there at SLCFR. Dot org. More following the break. This is State of the Arts. The arts were so popular in early Cache Valley that it earned the nickname the Athens of the West. According to local lore, all of Shakespeare's plays were performed in Cache Valley by 1870. Hiram, Richmond, Smithfield, Franklin, Wellsville, and Providence all built opera houses around the turn of the century. In 1910, a reporter from Harper's Weekly observed, The people of Cache Valley have evidenced a great interest in dramatics, music, art, and literature since the very beginning of their settlement, and have made this valley a center of art and culture. A century later, Cache Valley is still recognized for its artistic richness with an abundance of visual and performing arts organizations. This is Wendy Hassan for State of the Arts. State of the Arts is brought to you by the Cache Valley Center for the Arts in Logan, Utah, with a cooperative gallery featuring the work of more than 30 participating artists. Details at cachearts.org. The 
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We uh, have with us for the hour Ambassador Christopher Hill, one of our most distinguished ambassadors in a, during a long and distinguished career with the U.S. State Department. Uh, he was sent to uh, some of the most dangerous outposts of American diplomacy, from the Balkans to North Korea to Iraq. His memoir is Outpost, Life on the Front Lines of American Diplomacy, and he's coming to Utah for three events on Tuesday in Salt Lake City. We'll outline those as we go along. Ambassador Hill is now Dean of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of uh, Denver. Ambassador Hill, interested to read in your book, um, you're also your father, you say, was in the Foreign Service, and uh, so you talk about how your family was in Haiti when I think this would have been Papa Doc Duvalier declared himself president for life? Yes, I was about... uh... 10 years old at the time, and uh, Papa Doc, who uh, uh, Francois Duvalier, was, um, his term was coming to an end, and he just decided he would extend the term for life. So uh, that caused a certain ruckus in the town. I remember it was machine gun fire in the distance and a lot of things like that. And so at one point, my dad came home and said, uh, uh, you are all being evacuated. And, of course, the reaction is, well, what about you, Dad? And, uh, but the idea was the embassy would just go down to people actually working in the embassy and all families were out. These are things that continue to happen to this day. It's pretty, uh, it's pretty horrendous. Fortunately, we didn't have any pets at the time because often pets don't get space on these airplanes. Mm, yeah. And uh, so um, uh, off we went and we um, you know, ended up uh, back at our little home in uh, Little Compton, Rhode Island with you know, TV camera crews on the uh, on the front lawn uh, asking us, uh, you know, what it was like. So, you know, that was a good experience for a ten-year-old. So you grew up as a diplomat's kid, and, and then you raised your kids as you know, and in, in various uh, countries. What's what's that like? Well, it's uh, first of all by kids. You know, I took them to uh, uh, Albania, and uh, we had a little. We created a little American school, and there were about twelve kids. Three of them were mine. Uh, at the school, uh, I think my kids. Uh, you'll have to ask them, but I think they really appreciated uh, uh, some of the places we we went to. Uh, but alas, none of them has followed in their father's footsteps. Um, my my daughter, um, who is now um, working in Boston, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, she uh, was with me when our embassy was sacked. Uh, this is at the start of the Kosovo War, and we were in Macedonia, so we were down in a safe room along with a few employees, hoping that they weren't going to light the building on fire and hoping that we'd be rescued, which we were. But uh, it was a, it was an interesting experience for her, to be sure. There are dangers. You write, uh, maybe we could go to Iraq next. Uh, you, in fact, your prologue to your book, you talk about... Uh... A, a, a convoy. You go out to a, a, a town, and, and coming back, I believe you encountered a, a bomb. Correct. Correct. There are definitely uh, dangers. Uh, in that case, it was an improvised explosive device that was put in a uh, pile of trash on the side of the road. And before you're too critical of our security people, you have to know how many piles of trash on the side of the road there are in Nasiriya. It would be pretty impossible to check them all. But, um, yeah, I did mention that, and certainly it was um, in in the opening of the book. Uh, But I didn't really want to talk a lot about those kinds of things. I mean, they happened in in Kosovo, uh, uh, elsewhere. But I, I wanted people to understand what the 
what a diplomat's life is like. I mean, basically, you, you do have those dangers, but essentially what you're trying to do is convince other governments to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. And so you're trying to use relationships to get them to say, okay, I'll work with you because I value the relationship with the United States. And I think, um, you know, people need to understand that, that if we just go around wagging our finger at everybody, um, lo and behold, people don't like to be, you know, ordered around. And so we get less cooperation. So there's this whole question in diplomacy, how close do you try to get to people in order to get them to do stuff that they wouldn't otherwise do? Or do you just back off and say, I won't deal with you? And when you back off, and this is, uh, you know, you, you see this in Congress all the time or sometimes in the media, this idea that we shouldn't be talking to so-and-so. Well, uh, okay, but uh, once you back off, you're going to lose, lose whatever influence you have. So I try to kind of go through these dilemmas and try to explain, you know, that you're often having to make judgments on on the scene. I mean, you can't go back to... Washington for for guidance all the time. I I remember Holbrook's uh, uh, Holbrook Richard Holbrook, one of the great American diplomats of the uh, late 20th century, saying to me, "The only thing worse than uh, not having guidance from Washington is having guidance from Washington, because <laughs> they often don't have a feel for the situation mm -hmm. uh, that you're dealing with." So you kind of have to make these calls on your own, and uh, you hope that all your training and experience uh, allows you to make the right call. Imagine as a diplomat, there are times, or, or a foreign service officer, whatever post you you hold. There are times when you have a feel for what you think is right to do, but you get instructions to the contrary from Washington. Right, right. You get, um, you know, you you know that um, something is the is the right approach, and then people in Washington now, admittedly, they're looking at a lot of other issues, and they may have a kind of better uh, perspective than you do. But at the same time. Uh, they may have a. They may have misunderstood things. For example, in uh, as Macedonia, I was in Macedonia as we're gearing up for the Kosovo war, and uh, we wanted to preposition a lot of uh, military, uh, you know, material in Macedonia and use it as a sort of base to be launching operations on Kosovo, well, or against the Serbs. And I remember the Macedonian president uh, saying. Uh, Will you allow us? To, will you allow us to be a member of NATO so we will be your alliance forever? And the answer from the, the our general was, well, it's above my pay grade. I can't bring you into the U.S. alliance system. And then the Macedonian president said, because you need to understand, Serbs have long knives but even longer memories. And so if we participate in a war against Serbia. Uh, they will remember that for the rest of history. So you have to understand these things uh, a little better, uh, and that's why you have uh, people on on the scene. So um, it's not that Washington's always wrong. Sometimes they do have a better perspective, but sometimes they just don't understand what you're dealing with on a daily basis. You've talked earlier in the hour about uh, in, engaging, right, and trying to understand. Your father, apparently, according to the book, uh, would say everything has a reason, and so you, you need to probe for that reason. Right. That sounds right. like a diplomat. And he, yeah, he was, a, he was a total total diplomat, and, you know, he was someone who 
who um, really instilled in me this notion of being pragmatic and practical, not lecturing people, unless you felt you could get something, you know, it's, it's rare that you wag your finger and lecture someone and then they hit the side of the head with the palm of their hand and say, oh, now I understand, okay, I'll go along with that. It's very rare. Usually you have to appeal to them on some other different, uh, some other level. And so my dad was, um, you know, very much of that, of that view. We need to, first of all, be in listening mode. Um, this is something Americans uh, need to do a little more of, you know, sort of shut off the broadcast for a second and listen to what the other guy's saying. And then when you understand where the other guy's coming from, maybe you can work with, with, uh, with him on that. So that was something my dad kind of talked about. And uh, and his uh, my dad was sort of an amateur uh, carpenter plumber. He did all he did everything because you know when you're in overseas you're often doing your own stuff. And and I remember trying to get something to work. And he said never force a mechanical object. You know mm-hmm. understand that it's mm-hmm. built in a certain way and don't just think you can jam in some piece of metal because it doesn't work that way. And he meant that, meant that uh, you know, I was like eight years old at the time, but he meant that as a sort of broader metaphor. Don't force things. There's mm-hmm. a reason why they're not fitting. Mm-hmm. So I wonder, uh, taking that, and I take your point, uh, you know, other countries don't like to be preached to, Americans do tend to preach, and, and, and we feel sometimes that we have some good things to preach about. For example, President Carter's human rights uh, push, President George W. Bush's exporting democracy. Uh, where, where's the balance? Yeah, and that's the key word here is balance. Uh, you're right. We uh, we do tend to preach. We have a good story to tell, uh, and we have some of this preaching that runs very deep in our DNA. You don't have to be a, a colonial historian or a 19th century historian to understand where this comes from in the U.S. So we do a lot of that. But you know, I think our our real value overseas is not in the preaching. It's in the practicality of finding solutions going forward. You know, many people in the Balkans, and, um, you know, I keep talking about the Balkans, but, uh, you know, it was, uh, I think, a very important moment for the United States post-Cold War. I mean, but obviously we had a lot of issues with it. I had a lot of issues with the North Koreans and the, and the Iraqis uh, afterwards. But I remember, um, you know, this issue, the the you would hear from people in the Balkans, well, the Brits, they always line up with the uh, Serbs, the Germans, they always line up with the Croats, and you Americans, you seem to be more practical about it. And that's exactly the kind of uh, image I wanted to project, which was we would understand the history, but we would not be trapped by it. We would not be seen as always being pro a certain country. We would kind of look for the way forward look for ways that a, a country could find a better sort of pattern with with their neighbor. And so just and and we would just sort of check our personal views at the door as we listened and tried to figure out what what the way forward was. So this kind of uh you know, MacGyver nation, uh, you know, this idea that we would kind of fix things with our little Swiss Army knives and, you know, understand how to get stuff done. I like that to be our image. Um, But at the same time, I have no problem with us being clear about our values. I think human rights are an essential value of the United States. I think that is what has made us great, our our 
system or system of tolerance, et cetera, due process, uh, democratic institutions. So I'm not embarrassed about that uh, by, at all. I think we need to be very clear about what our values are, but we also need to find solutions. And just giving some, you know, um, fist-shaking speech to somebody is not going to solve anything. If you just joined us, we are uh, talking about uh, hotspots around the world. We're talking about foreign affairs. We're talking with uh, Ambassador Christopher Hill, uh, who was sent to some of the most dangerous outposts of American diplomacy around the world uh, during a long and distinguished career with the U.S. State Department. Uh, his last post was as ambassador to Iraq in 2009 and 2010. He's now dean of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at University of Denver. And his memoir is titled Outpost, Life on the Front Lines of American Diplomacy. Uh, he's coming to Utah for three events um, in Salt Lake City. Let me outline those uh, right now in the middle of conversation here. Uh, first of those is with the League of Women Voters of Utah. That's at 11 a.m. at Little America Hotel on Tuesday. And information there is lwvutah.org. Then at 3 p.m. on the University of Utah campus for the Hinckley Institute in the Hinckley Caucus Room at 3 p.m. Information on that event, hinckley.utah.edu. And finally, in the evening, uh, he's uh, giving a, a presentation at the Salt Lake Committee on Foreign Relations. More information on that at slcfr.org. Ambassador Hill, I want to talk a bit about uh, terrorism. This uh, terrorist attacks uh, just seem to go on and on. We had Brussels, of course, uh, Pakistan. Brussels uh, touched uh, people in Utah. There were some uh, missionaries for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who were injured there. Of course, many people killed. Um, it's it's uh, being talked about, of course, in the presidential campaign. Uh, I wonder what your thoughts uh, are. What, uh, what principles should we adhere to to, to counter terrorism? Well, first of all, I think this is one of the most serious problems we face in the world. Uh, I would put it right up there uh, as, a, as a very, very difficult problem. It's a difficult problem not only for, for the fact that uh, these are people who think nothing of killing others. And, I mean, what's kind of shocking about it is, you know, if they kill 30 people, they're happy, but they're happier if they kill 300 or happier still if they kill 30,000. So, I mean, these are, we live, we, we are dealing with an absolutely brutal and merciless foe. So we need to be really geared up to deal with this. There are a couple of, there are many different fronts to this. Uh, with respect to what happened in Belgium, I was a little discouraged to hear all the commentary about all the problems the Belgian police have and, and the fact that Belgian society has not done well about integrating uh, their Arab minorities in, you know, in various cities or whatever. You know, all that may be true, but I think the first thing you've got to do when terrorism strikes an ally like the Belgians is to really hold them close and say, we're with you, and we're going to work with you. We're going to put everything we can at your disposal to try to make this, uh, to try to uh, not only go after these people, but uh, prevent this from happening again. So I think it's a time where all of us civilized countries need to kind of pull together more and not be sort of playing the blame game about things. Lone, you know, absolutely, there are things the Belgian police did wrong. I'm not sure the time to talk about that is the day in which they've had this terrorist, uh, uh, terrible terrorist attack. 
So I think we need to work on that outer circle of allies and make sure all of them feels that we are with them in spirit and in deed. The second issue, though, is back in the Middle East. And, you know, when I look at uh, ISIS's creation, there are a lot of people who say, well, it was created because the, the Shia of Iraq didn't do enough outreach to the Sunnis of Iraq, the Sunnis being a vast majority in the Middle East, but a minority in the country of Iraq, and that somehow the Shia should have done more, and the Sunnis felt bad that they didn't do more, and that's why they went into this Sunni terrorism, which is what ISIS is. Um, I, w I submit to you that it's more complex than that, and that we have some Sunni states, and I would put Saudi Arabia high on this list, who have not done enough to deal with the terrorist threat. Now, the Saudis would be horrified to hear that statement. They would say, well, look, our police have been engaged in this. But in fact, when you look at where this kind of extreme Sunni Arab radicalism is coming from, it's coming out of the Gulf. It's coming out of uh, out of the Arab Peninsula. It's coming out of Saudi Arabia. So I think the Saudis really need to do more. We know that in the battle against ISIS, a lot of these Arab states that early on said they were part of it have not been part of it for more than a year. The Saudis have been bashing these uh, Shia rebels in, uh, in Yemen, the so-called Houthis, and have not been really present for the fight against, uh, against ISIS. So I think there needs to be some really serious um, diplomacy with that second uh, area, which is all those Sunni states, you know, many of whose populations are saying, well, we don't like those, we don't like ISIS, but we, at least somebody's doing something about Shia encroachment, namely Iran and Iran's projection of power through Iraq and into Syria and, and Lebanon. I don't think that's enough. I think the Sunnis need to take more responsibility for this Sunni terrorism. And then finally, with the actual battle against ISIS, um, you know, I'm of the view that I don't want to see American military uh, formations involved there. I don't want to see us, you know, dropping the 82nd Airborne or something there. I don't think it will solve the problem. I think it'll make us the target. And just, you know, driving ISIS out of towns, well, they're going to go somewhere. And, you know, unless you plan to kill them all, uh, which is, you know, just a hard proposition, I think they will reconstitute. So I think what we need to do is uh, maybe more of what we're doing, that is more of these special operators, more of this, uh, of these airstrikes, but also uh, what some of our special operators have done so well is to work, is to get various Kurdish factions to work with various Arab factions to get some of these uh, various militias that are on the ground there who have a stake in defeating ISIS and getting them to work together. And then finally, I th I would like to see a much bigger diplomatic push by the United States to figure out what Syria is going to look like in the future. You know, to to just say they should have a ceasefire. Ceasefires don't hold unless people know that that's really the end of the war and know that what they're going to have in the future. So I think ceasefires are bound to break down unless there are some political arrangements that are laid out there, some kind of draft constitution, some kind of approach, which is precisely what we did in, in uh, Dayton, in, in Bosnia. We laid out a future of Bosnia 
then declared a ceasefire. And then people said, well, you know, I don't want to keep fighting if I know what the outcome's going to be. You never want to be the last person to die in a civil war. So I think we need to spend more time on the diplomacy. And that involves working with a lot of uh, partners, some of whom we don't like at all, but we need to figure out a way forward to, to devise a sort of pathway for Syria's uh, Syria's future. And then you can have elections, uh, you can have ceasefires, all of that will make sense when people know that where the ultimate destination is. We're talking with Ambassador Christopher Hill on the program today, and we'll take a break, come back with our final segment with him. Uh, He is now Dean of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at University of Denver. Uh, His memoir is called Outpost, Life on the Front Lines of American Diplomacy. He's coming to Utah for three events on Tuesday. Uh, The first of those is with the League of Women Voters, 11 a.m. at Little America Hotel. Um, Information on that at lwvutah.org. Next at Hinckley Institute on the University of Utah campus in the Hinckley Caucus Room, 3 p.m. on Tuesday. Information there, hinckley.utah.edu. And finally, with the Salt Lake Committee on Foreign Relations in the evening, and uh, that is at the Alta Club in Salt Lake City. Information there at slcfr.org. More with Ambassador Hill following this break. After 33 states, it's now Wisconsin's turn to decide. Democrat Bernie Sanders is hoping to keep his winning streak alive. Republican Donald Trump is far ahead in the hunt for delegates, but has high negatives in this key swing state. I'm Scott Detrow. Join me and the NPR politics team for live coverage of the Wisconsin primary. Tuesday, April 5th, from NPR News. Tuesday evening at 7 on Utah Public Radio. Hey, what's up? I'm Shad. He revealed his unstable childhood in the funny memoir, Running With Scissors. And now, Augustin Burroughs is sharing his love and sex life. Coming up, he'll join me to discuss bearing it all in his new book, Lust and Wonder. That's coming up on Q from PRI, Public Radio International. Join us this afternoon at 1 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We reached our last segment with Ambassador Christopher Hill, who uh, has been involved in uh, many areas of the world. He's been ambassador four times, uh, including his last post, which was as ambassador to Iraq in 2009 and 2010. And uh, he now uh, uh, serves as dean of the Joseph Corbell School of International Studies at the University of Denver. Uh, his memoir is Outpost, Life on the Front Lines of American Diplomacy. He's coming to Utah on Tuesday for three events in Salt Lake City. Um, Ambassador Hill, as you were, you were outlining a, a very convincing case, a very logical case for diplomacy uh, to work in, in some of these hotspots, terrorism, Syria, and I guess I have politics on the brain because we're in the the presidential season. And I was thinking, in the, kind of in general, it's my view that it's sometimes hard to sell diplomacy as a solution. It's more maybe emotionally satisfying to go and bomb somewhere, and it's easier to well, sell politically. You got it. I mean, it it offers diplomacy offers no refuge for those in in need of instant uh, you know gratification. So you're right. It's a it's a tough slog. But, you know, the problem is, uh, and by the way, I am not opposed to 
using uh, military means to support diplomacy. Uh, there are times when uh, you just have to stand back and, and let the other guy have it. And, uh, you know, we've come to those times in our history. And, uh, you know, the point is they ought to be a last resort and they ought to be uh, something where, you know, you're prepared to live with the consequences. War is a very serious means to a serious ends, and you need to really uh, be ready for it when you engage in it. And I think if diplomacy can be used to to um, kind of soften some of the edges of these problems and try to then uh, figure out a way forward, um, I think it's a, it's a good bet. But I want to make very clear, I don't think there's any diplomacy with respect to or dealing with, with ISIS. There's only diplomacy to deal with other countries to help to get them in a position to deal uh, with ISIS. I don't see, see any negotiation whatsoever with a thing like ISIS. Do you, uh, it's hard to predict, uh, where do you see it trending, specifically with regard to ISIS? Do you see them uh, growing, gaining more power? Do you think we're making progress? You know, the irony is that as hideous as some of these recent bombing attacks would be, were, I mean, we know, of course, everyone's very familiar with the Brussels attacks or Paris, but maybe people are less familiar with the fact that ISIL, you know, killed 50 Iraqi, uh, Shia Iraqis in a soccer match uh, last week, and they continue to, uh, you know, bomb Shia communities in in Iraq. Um, as terrible as these uh, incidents are, um, ISIS is on their heels right now. They have been pushed back. They've been pushed out of territory in uh, Syria um, and also in Iraq. Uh, there are many indications that the Iraqis are going to gear up to liberate the city of Mosul, which population-wise is the second largest city in Iraq. So there's a lot of kind of good news on the actual battlefield. The problem is, as they lose territory, they then switch tactics and try to you know go after us in um, in other places, uh, as Al Qaeda always did. Remember, Al Qaeda was never so interested in tact in uh, in territory. They're interested more in uh, kind of in these terrorist attacks. So I think we're seeing ISIS become look a little more like Al Qaeda and less interested in territory as they realize they won't be able to hold it. It's very important to deny them territory, otherwise they get to. Uh, Sit there and, pl and plot and train and, and do other things. So we need to take that territory away from them. But we need to understand this is a, this is a multifaceted enemy who is uh, uh, then going to take the fight to city streets and places like Western Europe. Let me move just uh, quite close in that region. Uh, what is your view of the uh, Iran nuclear deal that was struck? You know, I think it's a it's a tough thing to do. I mean, Iran is a uh, complicated place, and by no means do they share our values. Uh, but I think it was it was the right uh, thing to do. First of all, I think it um, it diminished the Iran nuclear threat. It certainly didn't eliminate it, but it uh, but it diminished it. I think it gives a chance that within Iran, you know, Iran is a very split society right now. And for those who feel that Iran's future should be in the world and not just, you know, trading with North Korea and other miscreants like that, for those who feel that Iran should have a global perspective, 
uh, as a as a serious 4,000-year-old civilization, I think the nuclear deal gives those people a chance, including their foreign minister, Javed Zarif, who, by the way, is one of our graduates. He has a master's and Ph.D. here at the University of Denver. So I think it really opens up a potential there. But one should not be uh, of the view that Iran is a simple problem to solve. I mean, this whole mullahtocracy that we know all about, that we've known for years, is going to be very hard for these uh, more uh, secular, this sort of uh, young, dynamic engineering engineers and all these you know, people in Tehran. It's going to be tough for them to dislodge these mullahs. But I, I think this uh, nuclear deal uh, gives them a chance of doing that. I'd like to move to the uh, to the Western Hemisphere. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been posted to, to Cuba, but uh, I wonder what your thoughts are with uh, the policy now of engagement with uh, with Cuba. Do you, do you worry that uh, this is just rewarding a, a government which has a problematic human rights record? Well, I think there is that concern, and it's understandable, especially among many um, Cuban Americans who fled the Castro regime, a very brutal regime that continues to be a very brutal regime. But, uh, you know, uh, not to make light of it or to use a sports metaphor, you know, when you've tried the running play for 40 years and it hasn't worked, it is time to throw a forward pass. And so I think um, uh, what uh, our country is trying to do with Cuba now is open it up. And in the process of opening it up and giving people their uh, more of a perspective on the world, and even creating some uh, rising expectations, which I think are essential for political change in a country. I mean, uh, you know, political change doesn't come when people are flat on their backs. It comes when they have an expectation that things can get better. So I, I think it's a, it's a bold step by the administration. Uh, I know there are many people in Florida excited by this because they see Florida as really a state that's going to gain a lot. But, of course, there are other people who say this is the wrong move. The trouble with that argument is you have to make the case that for 50 years we've had these sanctions, and you have to make the case that somehow this has, um, this has uh, helped cause political change in Cuba. And so far it has not. So let's give the uh, you know, forward pass a try here. We're coming to the end of our conversation. I, I want to talk about uh, North Korea. You've had uh, you've had experience there. Oh, yeah. You took a trip to Pyongyang <laughs> yeah. in 2007, and this is kind of yeah. on the other end of the spectrum—a a, a hermit nation, very isolated—and and it's it's hard to know what the thinking yeah. is there in the regime. Well, you know, I talked about Iran as having these kind of young, technocratic-oriented uh, society in Tehran and their struggles against these sort of. Uh, this mullahtocracy that has really run Iran. When you look at North Korea, it is very difficult to locate any kind of set of good guys that you're trying to uh, encourage. Uh, I don't think those good guys exist there. I think what you have is the world's probably the world's most brutal regime um, trying to develop the world's most dangerous uh, weapon. So what are you going to do about it? So in the early Bush administration, uh, the way we dealt with it was by giving uh, very tough-minded speeches from Washington, various Washington think tanks. And what happened was we had our South Korean allies, uh, South Koreans, upwards of 40, 50 percent of South Koreans were saying, you know, what are you Americans doing? I mean, we live here. 
we can practically see them from our bedroom. You know, they're just a few miles north of us. And uh, many South Koreans are saying, what are you doing as, as the United States? And so they started blaming us for North Korea's nuclear ambitions. So we engaged. We did our best. We got, made some progress. We shut down their plutonium uh, facility. But ultimately, they did not give us what we needed in terms of verifying that they were really getting out of this business. And so we had to shut down these negotiations. But nobody in South Korea is criticizing us because they realize we've really tried. So now we have a situation where the South Koreans are really uh, upset about the North Koreans, and we need to stick with the South Koreans on this. We need to help uh, in, in terms of our alliance uh, uh, obligations. We need to make sure that if North Korea does something crazy against South Korea, like launch a missile, that we're in a position to help the South Koreans shoot it down. And that's why we've been talking to them about this this technology, this anti-missile technology. And, and we'll so have to... I'm sorry, Bess, we're, we're just about out of time. I just wanted to uh, yeah. uh, end the program here um, and uh, mention that uh, Ambassador Christopher Hill will be uh, in Salt Lake City for three events with the League of Women Voters, with the Hinckley Institute, and with the Salt Lake Committee on Foreign Relations. Ambassador Hill, it's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. And now from UPR News, the last installment of 54 Strong, USU's civil rights pilgrimage, focuses on the music of the movement. USU professor Jason Gilmore explores this topic with his students in America's Deep South. On the civil rights pilgrimage, our group of 54 Strong followed a light all the way to Marion, Alabama to learn more about the roles and power of women in the music of the civil rights movement. In that small southern town, we had the privilege of meeting up with Billie Jean Young, famed actor, writer, and MacArthur Fellow, who enlightened our group on why music was so central to the success of the civil rights movement. Well, you know, music is uh, used and was used in the civil rights movement as a way to quell fear. It's almost a character in any story you have to tell because when things were tight in the movement and people were worried about their safety, the best thing to do would be to start a song. Billie Jean Young is also well known for her one-woman show dedicated to honoring the work of Fannie Lou Hamer a former Mississippi sharecropper turned civil rights activist and organizer of the 1964 Freedom Summer Project. We learned that Fannie Lou Hamer was an inspiration to her fellow civil rights foot soldiers and frequently leaned on music to soothe her own soul and to inspire others around her. This Little Light of Mine was a favorite. It was a favorite song of hers. And I think, you know, it, it, it told the truth about what she was about. And she was saying to people, you may not have much, but you can take that little light that you do have and just let it go, just spread it. I'm gonna let it shine, this little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine, this little light of mine. I'm gonna let it shine, let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. On another stop on our civil rights pilgrimage, we met with Carolyn McKinstry, who was featured in our second installment here on Utah Public Radio. 
McKinstry is a minister dedicated to working on racial reconciliation in the South and was a survivor of a bomb blast in the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. We asked her about the relationship between women, music, and civil rights, and she immediately gravitated to one of her favorite female singers of the time. Well, uh, uh, Mahalia Jackson was one of my favorites. And I remember reading several times that when Dr. King was speaking somewhere, he would always have a favorite song for her to sing at that occasion. Uh, in those days, we sang the hymns, and the hymns are, are uh, extractions of the Bible, and so we felt really good about what we were hearing. How did I make it over? You know my soul back in wonder. Music is an important aspect, but that was, I, I felt like it was a spiritual motivator for King. It was his way of preparation of getting himself ready for whatever he was going to encounter. The voices of women from the civil rights movement of yesterday inform those of the powerful women in music today. On our pilgrimage, we were lucky to share the bus with Chloe Kopoloff, a budding and talented young musician from Bellevue College. Kapoloff represents a new generation of young artists involved in civil rights. My ultimate goal with my music is to make connections with other people. Just like all of those in the civil rights movement, I want to use my songs to, to move people, to bring people together um, for a better cause. Before the pilgrimage began, Chloe, at age 18, decided to write a song for the group of 54 Strong. The song titled Take My Hand, quickly became a favorite throughout the pilgrimage. Take my hand, we'll walk hands high we belong United as one Black, white, gold, it doesn't matter We're all beautiful This is Jason Gilmore reporting with University of Washington students Kira Baker, Nathan Bean, and Alice Bell from the Deep South for Utah Public Radio. Support for the USU Civil Rights Pilgrimage 54 Strong is made possible in part by our members, the USU Access and Diversity Center, and the USU Diversity Council, cultivating diversity of thought and culture and serving the public through learning, discovery, and engagement. Access Utah is a production of Utah Public Radio. You can listen to this episode or previous episodes of Access Utah anytime at upr.org, where you can find a link to subscribe to our podcast. This is Utah Public Radio, KUSR HD1 Logan, KUSK HD1 Vernal, KUSL HD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KCEU Price, and KUSU FM HD1 Logan. The Zesty Garden segments take center stage on today's Zesty Garden. First on Bug Bites, you'll learn about the miniature insect apartment complexes called galls. On the green room, we'll revisit why you should consider growing Haworthia. They're very easy to take care of. In For Eat's Sake, Chef Barney Northrup discusses the virtues of tomatoes and includes a recipe for making your own